Amen. Thank you. Good evening. Grab that. Why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm 90, 90. While you're turning there, as a reminder, um, we have that foundations class um, looking at the basics of uh, what we believe as Christians uh, on Sunday. So the first class will be Sunday. If you're signed up, you don't want to miss that. Um, Pastor Dan's going to be sharing uh, uh, about how to make the most out of this time that we're going to be studying that. So if you haven't signed up and you want to come, there's still time. Um, you might just be delayed in getting the special tools that Dan has talked about, but the sign-up sheet's in the back there, so if you're still interested, um, you can still sign up. So, Psalm 90, let's look at it here. Verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up, and in the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants, O oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much. Uh, as we sang that last worship song, I was reminded of the original writer of Amazing Grace, uh, of uh, John Newton, and uh, having lived a life of debauchery and uh, being a captain on a slave ship and, and just living a, a fleshly carnal life and then uh, being saved by you and recognizing that there was no good in himself and yet because of your love and your grace you transformed him and you've used him so powerfully even after his death with the things that uh, you produced in him by your spirit lord uh, and we are so thankful that you have that same 
power and can have that same effect in our lives, Lord. Thankfully, due to your grace, your mercy, and the work of your spirit, Lord. I pray as we look at uh, your word tonight, as we study these things, we look at this psalm and ponder it. I pray that we would be moved with a heart of gratitude, an understanding of who you are and your greatness, the things that you've done, your work in our hearts and our lives individually, Lord, and that we would we would do as the psalm says, that we would learn to number our days, Lord, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Father, we ask that you would speak to us tonight in your name. Amen. Psalm 90. Uh, if you look at the uh, little subtitle there, um, it says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. This is, by most Bible scholars' accounts, truly written by Moses. You know, those little subtitles and everything, they're not necessarily uh, inspired scripture, but based off of the contents of it, um, the style of language, uh, most Hebrew scholars truly believe that this was written by Moses. And if that is the case, that makes this the oldest psalm in the Bible uh, that we have in the book of Psalms, the oldest psalm here. Uh, this psalm and Psalm 91 are sister psalms, and many also believe that Moses wrote Psalm 91 as well. Um, psalm 90, though, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that's what, how it starts out, and I think that's the, the first application that we have is prayer. For Moses, he was a man of God. He was called by the Lord to lead Israel out of Egypt, to lead them to Canaan, the land that the Lord had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to take them there. And Moses, as he's called here, is a man of God. We know throughout the rest of the scriptures, he's called a friend of God. And yet Moses, he, he understood and recognized his need for prayer. And, and it's a beautiful thing if you go back through uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch, of the Old Testament, and you, and you just focus in on the prayers of Moses. He was a man of prayer. He sought the Lord, and he turned to the Lord and crowd, cried out to him. And we have that same access through Christ, through the work that he's done. We can pray. We can cry out to him. Sometimes these psalms are psalms of praise. Sometimes they're uh, imprecatory psalms, a fancy word for saying we're trying to call down judgment on someone or vengeance, right? Uh, sometimes they're, they're meant to teach things, um, and other times they're just simple prayers. This one is a prayer in a time of anguish. Uh, there's two times that, that you may be able to place this in Moses' life. One is either after the rebellion where the spies had gone into the land um, and rather than going in like the Lord told them to go in they come back with the the false uh, report well not false true report but uh, a lack of faith and belief in the Lord that he could deliver the land to them like he promised and because of that then the entire generation of adults that was there at that time and participated in that 
uh, rebellious unbelief against the Lord was condemned to die in the wilderness so that only the children that were alive at that time and then the children that would be born after that would be able to go in to the promised land and be able to experience the promise of God there in that land. So it was either at that point or, and I, I believe it's this latter one, or it's after all of this when Moses is standing there and viewing the promised land and having experienced now daily the death of these adults in Israel, in the camp of Israel, a conservative numbering of the people that came out of Egypt was about two million, one and a half to two million people that came out of Egypt. And you think of how many adults there were that ended up dying in the wilderness. Every time they stopped and made camp and then they'd get up to go and leave, how many graves were left behind in each time they made camp. Um, it was daily a reminder of their rebellion against the Lord and his judgment on them. And so you look at Moses and, and you see the things that they experienced in the wilderness and you can hear and you can sense uh, his understanding of just this, this frailty of man. And yet the most beautiful thing of all is how he starts this prayer. It's a recognition of who God is. And he says, Lord... He doesn't use Yahweh, he uses the word Adonai. And that word in the Hebrew means my Lord. It's a personal relationship he's talking about. My Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember for the people of Israel, when they left Egypt, how did the Lord go with them? He was there in their midst as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He was literally their refuge in the wilderness. Uh, and, and so quite literally, Moses would say, Lord, you've been our dwelling place, our refuge, our habitation. It, it, it could also, uh, that word dwelling place could speak of a den, like a den of, of wolves or foxes. It's a, it's a home, a place to hide out, to go to, to be, be safe from danger. And Moses is saying, Lord, you have been not just are now or will be in the future, you have been and continue to be our place of refuge in all generations from time past going on. The generation that was before being enslaved in, in Egypt, you were our dwelling place then. While we were in Egypt, you were our dwelling place. As we went out in the generation that, that saw the miracles of uh, the, the plagues in Egypt and the Red Sea crossing and the, the water from the rock and the, the pool, uh, bitter waters turned sweet and, and the healing of uh, the people of Israel from the, the fiery serpents and all of those things, that generation, the Lord was their refuge. And the generations that would be born after that, would, the Lord would be their refuge, their dwelling place in all generations. And again, it's true for us as well. The Lord is our refuge. Truly, he's our only refuge. For the people of Israel, it was this constant reminder that the Lord was in their midst. You think of that. It, he was there with them while they were experiencing his judgment. It wasn't just that the, 
the that cloud of fire, a pillar of fire and the pillar of clouds left after they rebelled against the Lord. His presence was there still. And they daily had that. You saw, see Moses going into the, the tent of meeting with the Lord many times throughout the scripture, still meeting and getting direction and guidance from the Lord. Yet they were under his judgment. Um, but for them, they, they recognized, and Moses himself, he recognized, Lord, you are our dwelling place. You're our only home, truly is what he's saying. He, he's recognizing that place of refuge. And in that, he's then, he jumps out and looks at the Lord's greatness and how, how awesome and mighty he is. He says in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The mountains, we're told in the scriptures, were raised up after the flood. For, for Moses and those people, that was the furthest point back in their era of history, was back to Noah and the flood and what took place right after that. It said, even before that took place, you were God. But he doesn't stop there. He goes back even further. He says, or ever you had formed the earth, the solid ground in the world, or its foundations underneath it, before you had even formed those things, you were God. And he goes even further back and he says, even from everlasting, which that means to the vanishing point, from this vanishing point to that vanishing point, you are God, you are eternal, beyond anything we can understand or comprehend. You think of this, you know, uh, I was just looking at an old Bible archaeology book and, and the introduction, I love the introductions in these old archaeological books based on the scriptures because they talk all the time about how uh, there was such criticism in the scholarly world against the scriptures after kind of the time of German higher criticism and all of that took place in Darwin and, and all of these kind of attacks against the scriptures came out in our modern history that there was almost this mockery of the scriptures, like they're just myths, the things that are being talked about, they didn't happen, there's no archaeological evidence for them. And yet, uh, time has proven over and over again, as men uh, of faith, and some men not of faith, have taken the scripture and said, if this is a history book, we can go back and find these things and see that they're true, and, and, and that the Lord... Uh, has preserved the truth of what took place in his word. The Lord exists outside of time. He exists outside of our understanding of all of these things, and yet he's personally given us his word to declare who he is and his love for us. And we can trust and believe him for that. From the vanishing point, from time before we can even remember to time in the future. He's God. He is everlasting God. He is high above us. If God was not outside of time, if God was not the original creator of the world, but, but something that came afterwards, then we would have no, no answers for existence. We would have no answers for life being here now, but even more intimately for us, we'd have no, no uh, truth, no foundation to stand upon for what we believe and how we live. The scriptures are a unified message 
of the character of God, the love of God, and the works of God for us. And, and, and he's declared, and Moses, uh, with those scholars, was often uh, thought of as being some mythological figure who didn't truly really exist. They said that that um, there was no uh, language, no writing at that time that he supposedly lived and everything, but as the Bible has been proven to be historically accurate and true, we can step back and see, and we know as believers who have taken his word by faith to see and say, Moses was a brilliant man that the Lord had given by his spirit these blessings, and look at this understanding of who God is because he intimately knew him, and yet it's written down for us where we can believe and trust the word. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's a foundational belief that we should have as Christians that God is the omnipotent creator of the universe. That's our beginning point, to truly understand and see him. But it is coupled with that intimate personal relationship, like Moses says, you, my Lord, have been our dwelling place in all generations. He remains the same. He doesn't change. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, he says. There's that recognition of the power of God. And then, if you can picture Moses standing there and, and calling to mind all the men and women who had died in the wilderness. And he looks back and says, speaking to the Lord, you turn man to destruction. And say, return, O children of men. That return is not return to me. He's, he's telling them to return to the dust. Remember the curse that was told to Adam. That uh, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. After that sin. And, and so Moses himself who, who wrote these things down. We have in the book of Genesis about Adam and Eve. And these things that went went on then, he, he's recalling and seeing that the Lord is the one who had said that man, uh, it's appointed once for him to die, and then the judgment. That, that man is at the mercy of the creator of the universe. And he says, you turn man to destruction. It's in the Lord's hands is the life and the death of people. And he says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. There's two ways to look at this. There's the idea that we have in the New Testament where it says with the Lord a thousand days or a thousand years is as a day, right? Um, but you can also look at this as uh, how old was the oldest man who ever lived that we have in the scriptures? He was just shy of... A thousand years old, right? Nine hundred and sixty-nine, if I'm remembering right. Um, and, and so, uh, even at man's longest lifespan, and the most that could be accomplished in that lifespan, to the Lord, it's like yesterday, when it's past. Something that's forgotten. It's just it's gone. It's history. And like a watch in the night, that that watch that is spoken of is the time from ten. PM to two in the morning. It's that time when nearly everybody's asleep. Some people have insomnia and are awake, but but it's that time frame where it's it's you're asleep and you don't remember anything. It's just a it's a blip and it's gone. Something you just live through and done. 
You sleep through it and it's gone. And that's that idea. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past and like a watch in the night. And then uh, verse 5, it comes in and Moses says, you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. This is referring back up to this, uh, to verse 3, where it says, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. You carry them away like a flood. You pour them out, literally, is what that says. They are like a sleep. Again, something that's just gone. The, 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 uh, impermanence of man compared to the uh, eternity of God is that picture that we're seeing. This contrast. Mankind is like nothing compared to God. Carried away like a flood, like a sleep. In the morning they're like grass with, which grows up. This, there's a time of growth and, and things that can be accomplished and uh, uh, an appearance of beauty and, and all of these things. Think of the grasses that grow after a, a downpour in the desert, the seeds that have been dormant for so long and the dryness, and all of a sudden you have these wildflowers that pop up. But as soon as the heat of the sun comes up and, and the water dries up, then those, those flowers, those, that grass, it just withers. It's, it's not permanent. It's not anything that will last. It's Moses declaring by faith how God is the one who has any permanence, who, who gives any meaning, who gives any uh, establishing of the works. Remember the very last verses we read in this about this prayer of establishing the work of our hands. There's nothing we accomplish in ourselves that is worth anything unless it's done in Christ. Because it's him doing it. It's his work. It's something for us to sit back and to ponder and to meditate on. As we experience some of the bad things that are happening in the world around us. That, that evil men have plans to do in, in the world. And you know, not to get go down the rabbit holes of conspiracy and all of these other things. We know from the scriptures that the imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. That, that, uh, that there is this uh, spirit of in, being inventors of evil things. Um, that there is seeking to accomplish all of these things against the Lord's will. Yet we need as believers to step back and say, they're like grass that will be dried up, withered up in the Lord's sight. They're, they're like a sleep. It will pass away. If we trust and believe in the Lord, then the things that we see and experience here and now are things that we can, we can just move past because of what he's done and trust in him. We don't have to be overcome with them. But, and then when we look at ourselves to recognize, again, that there's nothing permanent in us besides what the Lord has done and gives us. He says, verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. It's, it's a stark and, and, and terrifying picture. For them, again, they, they had the presence of God with them while they were under judgment in the wilderness, traveling through, and, and recognizing that they had been consumed uh, by his anger. That word consumed means to be completely exhausted, to be just completely exhausted by the anger of the Lord. And by your wrath, 
we are terrified. It is not a bad thing for us as believers to have that understanding that the Lord's wrath is terrifying. His anger is a consuming anger. Thankfully for us as believers, we've placed our faith in Christ. And like we sang, we have his amazing grace over us. But at the same time, he's still a jealous God, a righteous God who will judge sin. And that's where Moses steps in on verse 8 and he says, You have set our iniquities before you. That word iniquities here, it means perverted things. Uh, It's sin that is exceptionally evil, perverted or twisting deliberately. It's transgression. The Lord, because of his righteousness, his holiness and his awesomeness, he, he sets our iniquities before us, before him. He sees our sins. He knows us. He knows those evil, deep, dark things that, that we have in us. And he knows us. He says, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. The Lord brings out those things before him. He sees and knows. There's nothing we can hide from. Again, I think of Moses who, who wrote down the things that took place in the book of Genesis. And you have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they ate of that fruit. What was the first reaction? Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. They were ashamed. And what did they do? They went and hid. They tried to hide from the Lord in the garden. And the Lord walked in the garden calling them out. Adam, where are you? Right? They thought they could hide. They thought they could cover. But with the Lord, everything is uncovered. The Lord sees and knows. For us as believers, we need to take that to heart. If, if you have secret sin in your life, you're not hiding it from the Lord. The Lord sees and knows. And he, he, there's, there's anger and there's wrath on sin. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you can have forgiveness. But if you hang on to that and don't repent of it, then, then you're grieving the Spirit of God and you're in danger for your soul. The Lord has set our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his countenance. He's a holy, righteous God and he will judge sin. With us we have grace again, but we should not forget that understanding, having that fear of who God is and his character, his nature. Verse 9, it says, For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. Like a loud sigh is what that's speaking of. Just a groan. We finish our years like that. It says the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years. Just how short life is. And, and even if we're strong, if we're healthy, if we're, we live our lives all the right way and, and everything, by most we add 10, 20 years to our lives. But it's all labor and sorrow if we're doing it in the flesh, in ourselves, by our own strength. That's all that happens. For It says, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Right? That's the impermanence of mankind. This, this understanding of the mortality of man because of sin, because of rebellion against him. They were given promises as they left Egypt that the Lord would be their God, that he 
promised a land and inheritance for them, that he would provide for them a land of milk and honey and, and blessings and all of these things. And yet because of their rebellion, they were under God's wrath. And they were experiencing that. And Moses just saw it and was recognizing it as he's praying here. He started out with the greatness of God and then the weakness and frailty of man and then the the judgment upon sin because of the righteousness of God and what is the reaction that we are to have. Look at verse 11. It says, Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. That anger is burning anger, and the wrath is an overflowing anger. And that fear is that reverence and fear for God that we read about throughout scriptures. It's a recognition of how great, awesome, and mighty he is, of his righteousness and judgment on sin. And, and Moses is declaring that as great as he is, who has been from everlasting to everlasting, who has been our dwelling place in all generations, as great as he is, that is as much fear as we should have for him. This understanding of, of his awe and his power and just recognition of him. For as the fear of you, so is your wrath, he says. And then he gets in and says, so, and here's his prayer, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This high, lofty understanding of God, of who he is. The God from outside of time, created all things, yet has this personal, intimate relationship with us. The one who can condemn man to death, and, and, and with him a thousand years are like yesterday. He carries away the multitudes of people who have rebelled against him like a flood. They're like sleep. That's the God that, that Moses knew intimately, the God who said he's a friend of his. That's the God that we worship and we serve. And, and in understanding and knowledge of his character, the response is, Lord, teach us to number our days, to count the cost, to, to consider. For them, quite literally, they, they were condemned for how long they would wander in the wilderness. They could count down the number of days that these adults would live. At maximum, they were going to live that, that 38 years after that took place, after that rebellion took place. They were going to live at max that long. Moses himself, he knew that he was not going into the promised land, right? Because he had struck the rock twice rather than speaking to it so water would come forth. And he misrepresented the Lord. They could quite literally number their days left for them. And yet, Moses' prayer, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Whatever time we have left, we, we've been under your wrath, we've experienced your judgment, yet you still call us to follow you, right? What did he say from the beginning? You've been our dwelling place. You haven't abandoned us. You're our dwelling place in all generations. So, Lord, because of your wrath, because of our sins, because of your greatness, because of our frailty, teach us, Lord, to number our days. That's a deep relationship that Moses had with the Lord. That's what we have with Jesus. If we've placed our faith in him, we can experience the heavy hand of God's judgment. We can, we can 
look at and be in awe of the greatness of God. We can look at our frailty and our weakness and our shortcomings. We can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, teach us to live right. Teach us to have wisdom. Teach us to count the cost of our lives and to make every day, every moment count for your glory, for your kingdom. And that's the heart we are to have as believers. Lord, teach us to number our days. It echoes what Jesus said where he says, if any man desires to follow after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Remember the parable he talked about uh, of uh, erecting a tower. It says, what man who's planning on building this tower sits down and doesn't plan out all of his materials and the plans and count the cost of doing that? And he uses that to teach his disciples and us to say, you're going to follow me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to exact a price. Count the cost. Understand this is a costly thing that you're doing. And follow the Lord with wisdom. The beautiful thing, like James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask and pray and the Lord will give. Right? If we lack wisdom, we pray and we ask. We get in the word and we say, Lord, teach me how to practically apply this to my life. Uh, that word, uh, gain a heart of wisdom, it means to take your heart into wisdom, is what it literally means. Lord, take my heart into wisdom. For us as believers, this is where wisdom comes from, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We learn wisdom, which is how to rightly apply knowledge and understanding. We learn that by knowing the Word of God and then by praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give us that wisdom and direction. Teach us to number our days. That should be our prayer every morning. Lord, teach me to make this day count. Lord, teach me not to let it slip by. Teach me to understand that this is a day that you have made, that you've given it to me to live for your glory. And then verse 13, Moses, he continues on. He says, return, O Lord. Here's his, his crying out. Now, he's interceding on behalf of the people. He says, return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Have compassion. He, he knew the judgment of God. He knew the awesomeness of God. And yet he knew intimately that the Lord had compassion and mercy and that the Lord would not abandon them. And he cries out, return, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy. I love that. He, 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 he doesn't say, Lord, you know, we've done all these great things. We've experienced so much under your wrath, under all of these, this judgment we've had enough. But he just, he cries out and says, Lord, just satisfy us early with your mercy. He, he, he places it at the Lord's feet and says, Lord, we don't deserve it, but give us your mercy early. That's the prayer, the grace of the Lord. He recognized. It says that we may be, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. There are some Bible teachers and good Bible teachers that I've read and, and, and read some of the commentaries and looked at, and, and a lot of them go on and on about how this does not represent the New Testament understanding of God and all of these other things, when I would differ completely and I say this totally represents 
what the scriptures te- teach about. It, it, it gives a right understanding of the frailty and the mortality of man and the awesomeness of the Lord. And, and rightly says that if we cry out to the Lord, there's mercy and compassion, right? And that, that, that we can rejoice and be glad all of our days in his mercy and in his compassion, right? Paul over and over again talks about that we should rejoice. We should take joy in the Lord. We should, we should rejoice in him, in his mercy, and, and to see his grace and mercy overflowing in our lives. He says, make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us. It's beautiful. Moses' prayer as much of you as you've afflicted us, Lord, I pray that you would give us just this abundance of joy and gladness. And that's the Lord's good pleasure. Remember that um, uh, promise that the Lord gives where he says he will restore the years that the locust has eaten, right? To those who turn to him in repentance and come back to him. There, there's this promise of restoration and gladness. If we've been suffering under the, the, the heavy hand of the Lord's judgment in our lives, if we repent and turn to Him and fall upon His mercy and His grace, He will give us reason to rejoice and to be glad, and He can restore all of those things that are lost. He can. We've seen it in our family. We've seen it with people in our fellowships. We've, fellowship, we've seen how the Lord, through no effort on the people's part, the person's, the individual's part, besides coming to the Lord in repentance, through, through no merit of theirs has there been restoration, and yet the Lord's done it. And he's over and abundantly blessed by his grace and mercy, those who've turned to him and has restored. It says, make us glad according to the days in which you've afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. He says, show us your work. That, that's where the gladness and the rejoicing comes from is that the Lord begins to work. Let your work appear to your servants. Are you his servant? Do you cry out for the Lord to let his work appear to you, to work on your behalf? Do you trust him or do you walk by your flesh? Are you walking in the spirit? The Lord's given us his spirit to accomplish the things that he's called us to. And if we trust in him, if we rely on his spirit, then his work will appear to us. It says, in your glory to their children. Uh, that word uh, glory, it speaks of his impressive character, his glory, his splendor, his majesty. When the Lord does a work in our lives, it's a testimony to the people around us. As parents, if we trust him, if we turn to the Lord in, in faith, in repentance for sin, in, in humility and, and walking by the spirit of the Lord, then, then the people around us, our children, our spouses, our family members, our co-workers, they can see the impressive character of the Lord in the work that he does in our lives. If 
we trust him, if we fall upon his grace, if we, if we walk with him. And verse 17, it ends and says, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. I love that. Let his beauty be upon us. It speaks of the Lord's approval and pleasure is what that's speaking of. Moses is saying, Lord, let your beautiful approval and pleasure in us be upon us. You are our God. And he cries out. And then he says, and establish the work of our hands for us. After all of this, he recognizes if there's any permanence for what we do, it's because the Lord has done it for us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Of course, we, we know Moses didn't go into the promised land, but the, the children of Israel under Joshua and the Lord's leading went into the promised land and took it as their inheritance, um, just as the Lord had promised, and he established the work of their hands for them as they followed him in that humility and seeking the Lord by faith. And, you know, we know the rest of the story. There are these cycles of turning and rebelling against the Lord. But that's that's the whole story we have of the Old Testament is this constant calling Israel back to the Lord and saying, come back to me. I'm the God who judges. I'm the, the awesome, mighty God who created everything. And yet I want an intimate, personal relationship with you. And that's what he has for us. And he's called us to, is to remain in him. And ultimately, this is all fulfilled in Jesus, in what he's done. In that the Lord sees and knows our frailty, like Moses talks about. He sees our iniquities. He's seen our secret sins, all of these things. And that's why he sent Jesus on our behalf, to pay the price for us, to do the work that we could not do. And so our right response is, again, that verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What are we doing for the Lord? It's not about our own strength. It's not about our own wisdom and our own understanding. But are we counting the cost of following him? Are we making the most of our lives that Christ has redeemed on the cross, the price that he paid for us? Do I understand that my life is no longer my own? I've been bought at a price, right? He paid a costly price for my life, and it's now his if I've placed my faith in him. And I should walk and live that way, have a heart of wisdom. I don't know necessarily why I went here with this, but I want to share a short biography of a man called Henry Martin. Um, you may not know of him. He was a missionary. Um, it says the name of Henry Martin is not very familiar to most Christians. But this amazing missionary who only lived to age 31 accomplished more for the sake of the gospel in his short life than most missionaries who lived at twice his age. He was born in 1781 in England, and by the time he reached college, he was preparing to become a lawyer. However, the Lord had other plans. After he read about the testimony of William Carey in India and a book by David Brainerd, who was a famous missionary to Native Americans, Martin decided to dedicate his life to missions. He wrote in his journal, I almost think that going, uh, 
I almost think that to be prevented going among the heathen as a missionary would break my heart. I feel pressed in spirit to do something for God. I have hitherto lived to little purpose, more like a clod than a servant of God. Now let me burn out for God. God was calling him to India, but it seemed like the door had closed on him when he was refused appointment by the newly formed Church Missionary Society. But in God's providence, when one door closes and another opens, in 1805, he was offered the position of chaplain to the East India Company. At the age of 24, he found himself on a nine-month voyage from England to India and was put in charge of the spiritual condition of a convoy of 150 sailing ships heading for India. Excited to be headed there, he was warned by the chief officer on board not to share the gospel message with the people of India. Uh, they said it was a strange sight to see him learning their language uh, of the, the Indian uh, helpers and, and sailors that were on board these ships. It says, undaunted, Henry went full throttle and shared the good news with the people of India. In 1806, after moving into the home of a minister in Calcutta, Henry became burdened that the 300 million people in India might die without ever knowing Christ. He immediately set about learning one of the local languages, Hindustani, and translated the Bible into this Indian dialect. He dreamed that one day all of India would someday have the Bible translated into its many languages and dialects. After translating the Bible into Hindustani, Henry would often burn literally with fever and have chills rack his body. He began to contract uh, tuberculosis. His parents and his sister had died in England of that, and he knew that he was dying as well. Says the condition would pursue Martin for the rest of his life, but it never stopped him from preaching the gospel and translating the scriptures. After finishing the Indian translation, God spoke to Henry about learning Arabic. After this prompting from the Lord, he began to study both Arabic and Persian, or Farsi. This incredible young man was driven by a passion that all might hear the gospel and read the Bible in their native tongue. So after mastering Arabic and Persian, he translated the New Testament into both of these languages in 18 months, even though he had to deal with constant bouts of fever and sickness. He was now 29 and racing against death. While the East India Company saw his work as a waste, only time and eternity will tell us how many people he reached through his evangelism. He now felt his time in India was complete and decided to sail for Persia, which is now Iran. He wanted to learn how to make corrections to his Persian translation and felt that he could best do that by being there. So in 1811, he sailed into the Persian Gulf and settled uh, at Bushir. But the scholars there laughed at his childish translation and told him to travel 150 miles over the mountains to Shiraz, where the scholars there could help him. The Persian scholars knew that he was dying and were amazed he was willing to make the long and difficult trip to Shiraz. They said to each other that a holy, uh, what a holy book this must be if he was willing to risk his life for it. As if by a miracle he made it to Shiraz, almost dying on the way. He was the first English clergyman ever to visit Shiraz. Thankfully, he recovered and was able to improve his Persian translation of the New Testament greatly. His one desire now was to travel to see the Shah in Tehran some 400 miles away and place his Persian translation of the Bible into his hands for approval. It, hook, it took Henry another 30 days 
riding a mule, sick and dying to reach the Shah. Unfortunately, Henry was not allowed to see the Shah and was told to take his book to the British ambassador. What happened was the representative of the Shah told him he had to confess that there is one God and Allah uh, Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And in front of all of the Muslim clerics and this uh, representative, he said, there is one God and Jesus Christ is his son. And so he was told, nope, you can't see the Shah. Uh, it's only through the ambassador. So he did that. So more traveling and near death, Henry was finally able to get his New Testament into the hands of the ambassador, who thankfully was able to deliver it to the Shah. Amazingly, the Shah commented that Martin's New Testament was an excellent one and that his servant would read it to him from beginning to end. Overjoyed, Henry felt it was time to head back to England, but he never made it, dying at the age of 31. His legacy didn't die for his Bible translation spread all over the world, bringing the good news of the gospel to millions. Persian was the official language of the Middle East all over up and down the African coast, in the continent of India and, and Asia and, and all of that whole area. And he translated the Bible into Hindustani, into uh, Persian, and into Arabic. Uh, and, and Arabic was also you know, spoken by the whole Muslim world at that time. And uh, it says, what a wonderful gift to mankind this young man was, who according to the world died much too young, but in the economy of God met his date with death and his promotion to glory at just the right time. If you get a chance to read his full biography, it's beautiful. There's more to it. He had to choose going to India over an engagement to a woman who said, her mother basically said that, no, you can't go to India um, he was, they were in love with each other, and he, he said, this calling the Lord has on my life is more important, and I'm going to go. If you're going to come, come with me, but if not, this is where I'm going, and he ended up dying there, but his story, uh, whether you under, know it or not, has touched all of the continent of India, it was the Middle East, it was the first, his Persian translation of the New Testament was the first Persian translation since uh, 8500 um, of the New Testament. And uh, it, what's amazing to see is we're seeing fruits of his translation even now in Iran as there are Christians turning to Christ, turning to the Lord. And they still use his translation and the work that he did for the New Testament in their own language. And his impact in India and even across the world, there are many other uh, missionaries and, and believers, John Greenleaf Whittier, the, the poet, he was so moved by Henry Martin, he wrote his biography into a poem and everything. It's beautiful. But that was a man, he was a man who, who, who looked at his life before he became a missionary or a chaplain there. He had accomplished much. He had gotten all these awards in college. He had begun to learn and master all these other languages. He had done all of these worldly accomplishments. And he said, it's, I'm like a clod. Uh, everything I've done is nothing. I'm going to burn out for the Lord. And his example is that example that we re read in Psalm 90. That's why I chose it. <laughs> Teach us to number our days, right? He, he recognized he was dying. He recognized that, that the Lord had given him this, this calling. And he said, uh, Lord, I'm going to burn out for you. 
we may not be called to the same things to travel to a foreign land and to translate the Bible into other languages, but the Lord has a calling on each and every one of our lives. And we're going to be called to account for what we've done with the gifts, the responsibility, the blessings that we've been given. So we should have daily that prayer, Lord, teach me to count my days. Teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom, that I might live right for you. So let's pray.